Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, and today I'm joined by Bill Carr, the CEO of Carpe Diem, an independent website design and digital marketing agency based in Warrington, Cheshire. Uh, Bill, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Thanks very much. Welcome. Absolutely. Now, um, for the listeners, carpe diem, if you didn't already know, is a Latin phrase that literally means seize the day. The prospect of that is looking rather remote for the time being, considering Prime Minister Boris Johnson's orders to stay at home as part of the latest raft of measures against the coronavirus outbreak. Bill, from a business point of view, how have you found the last couple of weeks whilst all this has been going on? Uh, well, it's actually become quite apt in terms of trying to seize the day with each day uh, presenting new challenges. Uh, probably several times a day being presented with new challenges. Uh, the last few weeks have probably been the most challenging in business that we've ever had to experience in the 20 years that I've run the organisation. Uh, even going back to the financial crisis in 2008, which paled in comparison to what we're experiencing daily uh, or hourly at, uh, at the moment. Absolutely. It's not just been a challenge, of course, for uh, business leaders uh, with everything going on, but also um, the effective leadership of those in governments really come under the uh, the limelight as well. And also we've seen some contrasting approaches to uh, the outbreak alongside of that. So um, the likes of Xi Jinping, for example, in China, the likes of Giuseppe Conte in Italy, they were quite decisive in putting their countries in lockdown quite early, whereas we took very much a less hands-on approach, had money in place, had procedures in place, but in many ways we were waiting to see what happens before these harsher measures have gradually come into place. Um, If we take that away from crisis situations, Bill, and take that away from politics as well, as a business leader, which approach do you generally prefer to take if you're dealing with difficulties? Would you prefer to dive straight straight in, get on top of the situation, or would you let things play out a bit, see how things develop before you take the relevant action? I think you have to weigh up both approaches, really, and decide which approach is right um, for the actual decision that you need to make. At at the moment, looking at what decisions are being made daily, I think action has been the most paramount. So we have acted as quickly as we've possibly been able to. And uh, I think if you look at the press release that was uh, was done last night from uh, Boris Johnson that I certainly feel that that was the right thing to do and that potentially should have come earlier from some of the stories that you were hearing from the front line of people on the uh, the NHS but I welcomed the decision and uh, just wished that it had been brought forward somewhat but I do prefer to to take a positive and decisive action uh, when the time is right. Absolutely. I think um, it's important, um, especially in times like this, to look at it as bringing under the microscope this idea that as a leader, you need to not just have plans in place and be a proactive leader, but also you need to be reactive and have the capacity to be able to change tact with the changing guidance, with the changing circumstances. That's really important, isn't it? I think it's almost been an impossible situation. I mean, if, if um Taking this situation again as an example, if you'd have acted sooner, you would have people arguing the uh, the reverse that we should have waited and looked. But mm. uh, I certainly feel that in any kind of business, you know, you have to make a decision. And we have always kind of run our organisation with it's more important to actually start the process than necessarily to finish something. And it's better to get something eighty percent right or ninety percent right. Although we always strive for perfection, if we wait to make a 100% decision, then uh, quite often that's too late and the opportunity has passed and the decision will have been made for you. 
Yeah, certainly. Um, drawing on your own experience then, uh, Bill, um, do you have any advice that you would give to leaders who are currently facing difficult situations, perhaps not just in this context um, of what's going on at the moment, but in any context, really? I think it's always been important to um, seek counsel. Uh, it's good to be able to make your own decisions and be able to reflect internally on how you reach those decisions, but surrounding yourself by people that uh, you can trust upon and account on them to give you impartial and insightful answers has been something that I've always relied upon. Um, when I was younger and was running the business from nearly earlier age, it's something that I didn't do enough of. And looking back with hindsight, I wish I'd have uh, surrounded myself with more mentor-type figures at an earlier uh, part of my career where I would have been able to take guidance from them and had a, a counsel that I could have uh, relied upon. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to remember as a leader that it's not just a one-man or one-woman effort, is it? It's very much um, a team effort and everybody is very much in that together. Definitely, I think it's, you know, it's impossible for one person to be able to answer every single uh, decision that needs to be made for a business or for a country. And you've got to rely on those people around you to be able to give you the right information and the right guidance in order to be able to make an informed decision and recognising when uh, you need to seek that advice is, uh, has always been an important factor that we've used with bringing in third parties, both internally and externally for projects that we've run and uh, always found that to be paramount to our success. Absolutely. Um, we've talked about how sort of um, getting counsel from other people, getting advice has been really important. And looking back, you feel like you've done that a bit more in your earlier career. Um, did you feel um, growing up um, as a youngster, Bill, that you were always going to end up in a position of leadership eventually? Um, not really, but people have kind of asked me that question a few times. And um, I look back on my sort of childhood and was you know, captain of the football team and probably with hindsight look back and think actually took on those positions naturally without really thinking about it. And that was kind of the business approach or the business style that I uh, applied to within the business was more of how I used to act on, uh, on the playing field. And uh, I think there's a lot of people that probably share that sentiment as it kind of just comes naturally to certain people and then you can develop uh, your skills in leadership um, over the years. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, some people might view leadership or good qualities of leadership as just something that you're born with. But it is something that you can fundamentally develop and grow as you develop through life and your career, isn't it? There is always room for improvement in that sense. Definitely. I think you know, I spend a lot of my time reading and uh, you know, still looking for thought leadership books. So I think I continuously learn trying to uh, expand my horizons and my insights in terms of how other leaders in the world uh, do it be from companies or from uh, the political scene. Uh, So I think you're never too old to learn and uh, it's important that you keep your your mind open. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned, of course, um, that you've um, looked into uh, literature about uh, positive leadership um, over the years. Are there maybe any examples of leaders um, living or dead throughout history that have maybe been an inspiration to you and maybe their style of leadership has rubbed off on yourself? Um, There's been plenty out there. I mean, very topical at the moment I know there's been a lot of people comparing our current PM to uh, Winston Churchill's speech that he probably had to give when we were last in almost a wartime um, position and you're looking back I know there will be people that will view the likes of Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill with various uh, degrees of 
gratitude and some that were virulently disliked them, but they were quite decisive in their decisions that they held uh, true to. And uh, you know, I think we're looking back on history that people like JFK uh, that are very easy to, to pick out as very strong leaders that probably divided opinion at the time. Um, are people that I would certainly look back to with fondness and certainly hope that in many years' time we look back with... Um, hopefully with a similar kind of outlook of the leaders that we've had um, during my sort of lifetime. Um, I'm a little bit sceptical of whether that will will happen to the same level, but I'd like to think so. Absolutely. Of course, we mentioned Churchill there. If, if say, Churchill um, were to return from beyond the grave and address business leaders, address the country now with everything going on, what sort of things do you think he might say? Do you think it would be similar to the kind of things that he said in wartime? Uh, I do. Uh, I do think he would be very vehement in some of the, the statements that would be made. Uh, I think there's been far too many people that haven't taken this serious enough. Even this morning, looking at some of the photos that are circulating, certainly some of the photos that were circulating over the weekend, I just find it unbelievable that people are taking that level of risk, uh, not so much with their own lives, but with other people's lives. And you're relating it back to uh, you know to, to a business uh, situation. It, it affects the economy. It affects us all, and um, people need to take it far more seriously than they have done. Yeah, absolutely agree. And before we wrap things um, up, Bill, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next twelve months will hold for yourself for Carpe Diem, and what you hope to achieve in that time as well? Uh, well, I guess that's probably a lot different than what it was uh, two or three months ago. Um, we're a business that's always changed changed and adapted and we evolved as a digital business 20 years ago and we've continued to evolve and um, I kind of see this as you know, another opportunity for us to change and to pivot and to adapt and to be quite agile in terms of what we're doing. We we are already looking at what the, the current months will look like and how we will change as an organisation and I think that will be difficult to try and set a path, certainly for the foreseeable months, because we just really have no idea as to where we're heading and how long this will last for. But there will be opportunities that will be presented from this. And if we continue to explore those opportunities, have an open mind, try and stay positive and, and work together, um, I'm confident that we will come through this on the other side in a, in a strong position. But I think it's trying times ahead. Absolutely. And let's hope that they uh, do culminate in uh, some success because we are seeing borrowing rules are already being rewritten. We're seeing that it could yield changes in the economy as well as to business. So we are very much living in uh, changing times um, indeed. Um, Bill, yeah, crystal um, ball would be fantastic at this time, but I think we'll have uh, yes. to wait and see how it plays out. Yes, for sure. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme, Bill, and it would actually be fantastic, um, I believe, to maybe have you back on in a few months as well, just to see how those things have uh, played out and um, really um, sort of reflect on uh, this retrospectively. So thanks again uh, for your time today. No, be delighted to, and uh, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak. It's been an absolute pleasure, Bill. Um, we now hand thank over you. to uh, Jonathan White uh, for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both 
on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up 
doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the 
biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty 
major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstracts, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had 
lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is r- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh, short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do. Well, it. surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.